let's go ahead and settle in by uh, opening uh, your Bibles, if you have them, to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, where today uh, we're going to continue working through Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica in this series that we have entitled, A People in the Now Longing for the Future. So we're three weeks into this series now, uh, and what we've been looking at, really kind of our goal and focus, is that, uh, man, as God's people who are here in a specific time, at a specific place, right, in this point in history, uh, where we find ourselves, uh, is we believe that, man, the good news would call us to uh, be a people that are living in the now, But that as we live in the now, our lives are to be marked by grace for today and hope for the future. That as followers of Jesus, we live uh, because of what Jesus has done and the work that, that he has accomplished on our behalf. We live in the now. Uh, we, uh, we, our lives are marked by grace for today, but also that it is marked by hope for the future. And what that leads to, or what I believe that should lead to, what we see all throughout scriptures, that we would live radical lives for the glory of God. Proclaiming uh, to the world around us the good news of the gospel. And so what we've been doing through this letter is we've been looking uh, at, at Paul's writing to this young church. And what we saw uh, last week in our time is Paul moved in, in chapter 2 uh, to a portion of the text where he takes a moment uh, to defend the time that he had with the church in Thessalonica. You see, what's happened is a a group of critics uh, have stepped forward. So Paul in Acts 17 goes and preaches the gospel in Thessalonica. And uh, many Jews and also a large number of Gentiles are saved. And a church is formed and then persecution comes. And as persecution comes... Uh, it gets so bad that Paul and Silas leave under the cover of night. And so some critics have moved in and they have begun to claim that, hey, Paul left you when things got hard. So, so he really can't be trusted. And actually the gospel, this good news message that he proclaimed, can't be trusted. Because when things got hard, he left you to suffer on your own. Paul came in, and not only did he leave you, but what they were beginning to say and, and, and claim is that, is that he came so that, that he might take from you and take advantage of you for his own gain. And so Paul moves to, an, a, a, moves to make a defense for his time with them, but also what we saw last week is he lays out his heart motivation for coming to them. We really see it in two ways last week. First, uh, what he points to is his union with Christ, but also he wants the church to understand their own union with Christ, right? Union with Christ, what it means is that at the very moment faith is ignited and you become a Christ follower, you are united with Christ forever and there's no taking that away from you. That, that, that you are one with Christ. This is you are hidden in Christ. And this is what Paul wants them to understand. You see, because what Paul understands is that if, if they understand their union with Christ, and if you and I understand our union with Christ, it changes everything. I said last week that this union is to be the lens by which we are to see all of life through. Again, you are who you are because of Christ, not because of what you do or don't do or what you face. You see, the gospel is good enough and big enough to redeem 
every part of life, to define who you are in the midst of all of life, and to give you purpose all throughout life. And so we are to interpret all of life through our union with Christ. But then what we saw last week is he, Paul lays out the product of the, our union, which produces a ministry to the church, which again, that's not a building, that's a body of believers that Paul says, he says, my coming to you, my ministry to you was not in vain. It was not useless. Rather, what Paul argues is that it had purpose because by coming, he proclaimed the gospel to them and he did so, Paul says, he said, I did so without error in word and by living it out in deed. You see, as the church, as God's people, we are to be a word and deed people. And we're going to see that in our time in the text today. And so this leads us to our time today where Paul is going to turn back once again to thanksgiving and encouragement in light of this report that he's received from Timothy regarding how the church is living in the face of persecution. And so today we're going to look at four verses and really we're going to spend most of our time in the first two verses of the text. So let's look now at 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 through 16. If you don't have the Bible, it'll be up on the screen here and it says this. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Okay, so again, what I want you to remember as we enter into our time in the text is that in writing this letter, uh, Paul is seeking to encourage the church to continue on. And he's really doing it by, by presenting two things. I've already said one, he's reminding them of their union, that they are in Christ. But secondly, he is pointing out over and over and over again what God has done in them which is that the gospel has transformed their life, but he, he is also over and over and over again trying to get them to remember and see uh, what God is doing through them. That not only does the gospel transform, but actually when the gospel transforms a life, it transforms and then the gospel goes forth. It transforms and then it goes forth. And I believe that for followers of Jesus, you can't have one without the other. Meaning that if you say God has done something in your life, it will then show forth in your life and your living. Now the reason I say life and living is I believe there are a lot of people, especially kind of in our uh, Bible Belt church context, that would claim to have life in Jesus But it's just a label that they wear. You see, you can claim to have life in Jesus, but not be living at all for Jesus. And so I believe that not only that life part is that God has transformed you from the inside out. But guess what? That outward part is that the gospel goes forth through your life. And Paul, although he hasn't been able to get back to the church 
Paul has heard and he knows that this young persecuted group of Christians has not only been transformed, but they are living out their transformation to the world around them. Which is why he begins verse 13 with, And we also thank God constantly for this. You see, following the defense, Paul gets the focus off of himself and puts it back on his heart for the church. And so he begins, he says, we, which it points not only to him, but also Silas and, and Timothy and even those he's with then and those that had experienced what the church in Thessalonica was doing. He says, we also. Well, also what? What we see in the text is, is we also thank God constantly for this. Now what I love about the beginning of this verse is that it reveals to us, I believe it reveals to us, Paul's humanity and understanding of the power of the gospel and the Spirit's work in shaping his bride, the church. Remember Paul, if you read in Acts, Paul likely wasn't with these believers for very long, maybe a month, maybe two or three months max. So he wasn't with them very long before having to leave town due to the severity of persecution. And so Paul, in leaving, there might have been some worry that in the face of trials, this young group of believers might flounder and die. But you see, what he hears is that the opposite has happened, which leads uh, him to not thank himself for the part he played in their hearing of the word, but the part God has played in all of it. Not only to save them, but to sustain them and cause them to flourish in the face of hardship. And I think that's a note for us today. You see, when we look around at life, specifically in how we view those in the bride of Christ, we should be constantly drawn to two things. We should be drawn to awe and thanksgiving for the miraculous work of salvation. Are you today drawn to awe and thanksgiving for the miraculous work of salvation in the lives of others? And so I want to look at those two things quickly because I believe the first one actually draws us to the second one so that we would be a people of awe. You see, that we would be in awe first that God can and does save people who because of their sin deserve only wrath, but through Christ receive the opposite, which is grace, right? Like that should put us in awe. First and foremost, if you're a believer in Christ, because you are one of those, right? You are, you are a person in and of yourselves because of sin and the fall that you were born with a sin nature. An identity that was bent on self and you and you alone. And yet, although you deserved wrath, through Christ you received the opposite, which is grace. Like When's the last time you reflected on your own salvation and what Jesus has done in your life to transform you? But secondly, as you do that, that you would be in awe of other people and what God has done in their life. You see, the second thing is that awe, then I believe, produces what we see in this text, which is thanksgiving. That, that God does this despite any and all excuse, circumstance, or unbelief that we could muster. He brings life to dead things that we would never believe could have life, right? 
like over and over again through Scripture, and over and over again, like if you hear people's stories and what God has brought them out of, like you're like, wait, God brought life out of that? And so I want to, I, I inserted this this morning because it's something that happened to me last night that was just a crazy quick story that I just want to share because it, for me, this produced two things. It produced awe and thanksgiving. So last night, we went to a skating birthday party for a six-year-old here in the church. Uh, and we're at the party, and we're getting ready to pack up and leave, and my phone starts ringing. So I look at my phone, and it's my cousin. Her name's Jessica. I don't think she would care that I say her name. Uh, and and I, I look at it, and I immediately have this, like, oh, no, what happened? Because in my mind, like, me and Jessica don't talk very much. Actually, we have a pretty rocky relationship over the last few years. And so I show my phone to my wife, and Haley looks at it, and she gets the same face on, like, wait, what's going on? And I think both of our, both of our reality, like, in my mind, I'm like, oh, no, who passed away in my family? Like, that's the only reason I'd be getting this call. Uh, if you know my story, like, that's just kind of part of it, but I will go through counseling for that. Uh, and so I, I say, hey, i got to take this, and so I answer the phone. And, and I say, hey, Jess, how's it going? And she said, hey, hey Kyle, are, are you busy? I said, well, no, no, what's, what's going on? And, and, and she said, hey, re- remember my horse, buddy? And I went, where are we going? I, and so I started thinking, I said, yeah, yeah, Jess, I, I, I remember your horse, buddy, kind of. And, and, and she just breaks down on the phone, just sobbing tears. She said, well, he got attacked by some wild dogs yesterday and died. And I honestly don't know how to respond. Because... uh, All I can say in the moment is, Jess, I'm so sorry that happened. But but also, I'm thinking to myself at the same time, why the call at 8 p.m. to tell me this? Like... What, what is going on? Like I said, like, again, we probably haven't talked in nine, ten months. And yet I'm getting this phone call. And so I tell her, Jess, I'm so sorry. That is so hard and difficult. I, I, man, I, I can't believe that that happened. And then she said, well, there, there's one more thing I also want to say. And, and, and uh, then she said, you know, hey, Kyle, remember how I've never really been interested in God? And I was like... Well, yeah, I kind of do. We've had conversations and you've, I mean, she's kind of, a, she was, I, I believe in, in power and, and that you just kind of go into the atmosphere and, and this wide ranging list of beliefs. But she said, and I said, yeah, I, I do remember that. And she said, well, Kyle, here lately, I've been learning about him and I asked him to forgive me of my sins and save me and I gave my life to him. All. Mixed with, why not start the conversation with that, and then we can go to the horse? Like, why do you start with the horse? You see, I care about the loss of the horse, but I'm far more thankful for her new life in Christ. And so we continue to talk because uh, upon hearing it, I've got a few questions because uh, I want to do my due diligence and make sure that she's following Jesus, Jesus, and not some other form of Jesus, right? And so I start asking her like, hey, you know, uh, what is it? You know, because I'm looking for kind of key words. And she just said, well, I haven't found a church yet, but I'm interested in going to a church. I think I've found one that my friend goes to. She's been talking to me about Jesus. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really want to get baptized, but I don't know who can baptize me. And I went, well, 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 
I said, if you can't find anybody, you can drive up here and, and I'll dunk you in a horse trough, okay? And she said, all right. And you see, the thing is, is I'm still in awe. And some of that is like even some conviction of just like me questioning and wrestling with that because I'm like, God, like you, you can do that through her. You see, I also, I'm so thankful. You see, this in a similar way is found in Paul's response of thankfulness as he sits in awe of this report that God has done a work in spite of his absence. Guess what? God doesn't need Paul, but he uses Paul. And the same is for us. God uses us, but he can reveal himself to whoever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. And so Paul is thankful to God constantly. And so what does it mean to be constantly thankful? Well, actually that word for constantly there, when you really begin to flesh it out, there's a past connotation, there's a present connotation, and there's a future connotation to his thankfulness. And so in the past, what we see is that this constant thanksgiving points us back to the rest of the letter we've already read. Where we've seen that, that he's thankfully, uh, constantly thankful for the faithful reception that these people had when he was there and proclaimed the gospel to him. But there's also a present reality to his thankfulness. We see that in the text today in 13 through 16, that the gospel is bearing fruit in their lives. Now, we may not understand the fruit or even like the fruit or might wrestle with the fruit that we're going to see. But then, and we're going to see it next week, there's a future thankfulness. That Paul is thankful for the hope that he might return to them and share in the joy of the gospel's work in and through this church. Also, I believe that Paul, regardless if he ever gets to Thessalonica or not, he understands and knows and he has hope that, guess what, whether it's me literally going there or, man, one day in glory, guess what, we're going to talk about what God did in the church. And so today we're going to focus the rest of our time on the present reality of Paul's thankfulness. We're going to begin by looking at the specifics of this thankfulness. And then in verse 14, we're going to see the proof of his thankfulness. And then we're going to Tie the bow on at the end with the reality of grace and wrath and what it means for our calling as Christ followers. And so let's look now at verse 13 where we see the specifics of Paul's thankfulness. He says that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so let's just unpack what he says there. He says, when... Guess what? Salvation comes at a specific time and place, and that should encourage us. That should be something to hold on to and have hope in. Now, now I want to be clear with that, because really for some, for some of you, like if I were to ask you, hey, how did you come to faith? It would be like the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew, I believe it's 13, when he says that there was a man walking in a field, and then boom, he trips over uh, something, and he finds God's grace to be what it is, a treasure worth giving up all for. There's a specific moment in your life where you can say, yes, this was the time, this was the date, this was the place. Now, that's the story of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, man, his conversions, he had been wrestling with conversion for a long time, but he said, yeah, when I came to faith, he said, it was on a day me and my brother were headed to the zoo. And I got in the sidecar of the motorcycle, and on the, when I got in the sidecar, I wasn't a believer, and when I got out, I was a believer. He said, that was it. 
And for some of you, the story's like that, right? You were like, yeah, boom, I knew my need for grace in my sinful life. And man, I, in an, it's, I have that day, time, place. But for others, and this is more of my story, while coming at a specific time and place, I believe it does, there's a moment where faith is ignited. Man, that process seems a little more progressive and fluid, does it not? Where along the way you find yourself progressively coming to faith, but you gradually begin to be aware of your sin and need, which ultimately leads to your repentance and faith. And I want you to hear this. Both are valid when bearing the fruit of repentant faith. And so Paul is not concerned with the exact time or manner by which it came, but rather that it came when they received the word. The term for received here is associated with a relationship where something is being passed down from one generation or from one person to another. And so what did they receive? Well, it says they received the word. Now, Paul in this moment is not talking about the written word of God, but the message of the gospel where the word Jesus put on flesh, lived, died, rose again in victory, and is now writing the word of his mercy, grace, and salvation on the new lives of what were once dead hearts. And then Paul says, but it wasn't our words, it was the very word of God. You see, Paul wants to make it clear that the gospel is not some man-made news, but it rather holds authority and weight because it is the very word of God. Literally, it is Jesus, the word that put on flesh, right? Now, how did they receive it? It says, when you heard it. Again, the word Paul speaks of is the gospel, which is the good news that, again, must be heralded and preached for it to be heard. The word has to be proclaimed. As a preacher once said, you can't do the gospel. You must proclaim it with words. Yes, live out the implications of it with your life. Bear much fruit, but that fruit must point to the vine to which it is connected. You probably heard this saying, preach the gospel, use... Words when you have to, right? I I think that's a bad saying. Now, I, I said this during our Esther series. People will not be saved by your good works, but your good works will give opportunity for you to proclaim to them where salvation is found. So do good works. But when you have the opportunity, give them the gospel and the gospel alone. So what happened when they heard it? Well, Paul says you accepted it by faith for what it was. The good news message of God, not man. It's not a man-made message of hope because uh, if you think about it, the gospel is not news that man would naturally proclaim. Guess what? The gospel message focuses far too little on self and far too much on God. Our news, when we write it, is hopeless because it directs to save ourselves, so that it directs us to save ourselves so that we might get the glory or some portion of glory. But guess what? You can't, and you can't save yourself, and the glory only belongs to God. But the gospel is the message that in spite of your best efforts to give yourself life, you cannot. And so God in His love sent His Son who died for you because His efforts efforts were best. They were literally perfect. So that you might receive life. 
The work of the gospel in your life is not dependent upon anything in you, but all that has been done for you, to you, and in you by the work of God and His grace in your life. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And it is His work, Paul says in verse 13, that is at work in you. You see, the gospel is finished work that works and is working in you. For the gospel has saved you from the penalty of sin in your justification. The gospel is saving you from the power of sin in your sanctification as you grow more and more into the image of Jesus. And guess what? One day the gospel will ultimately save you from the very presence of sin in your glorification. It will be no more. But you see, what Paul is doing right here is he's pointing to the current work of the gospel in the life of the church due to their response to the persecution and hardship they're currently facing. And it focuses upon their union with Christ, which is to bring thanksgiving and encouragement to this weary and, and wondering. And what I, wondering, I don't mean like they're going astray. Literally mean I'm, they're wondering and wrestling. God, what are you doing? You see, wrestling is not wandering away. But guess what? Like we need to wrestle with the ways in which we wonder at times. You see, the goal, I believe, for Paul is similar to the words of John in 1 John 4 when he says that, that as God's children, we can persevere in hope because through Christ we overcome for He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. And so after a long journey of specifics in 13, we get to the proof of his thankfulness, which is found in the product of their faith. For Paul says in verse 14 that they became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. Again, in Christ Jesus, there's that union that are in Judea. Now, now as you read this, and we've already heard him, I believe it's in verse 14 of chapter 1, he taught... Maybe not. It's in chapter 1. That that he talks about this idea of them imitating this good work. And and so when we read verse 14 here, what we can look at and say, man, this sounds great. And it is great. But what is it that they're imitating? Well, the answer is they're imitating how to suffer well. And so the reason for Paul's thankfulness here is not simply that they were saved by grace through faith, but that their faith has proved itself to be genuine by the way that they have imitated perseverance through suffering. The same suffering that the church in Judea has experienced. You see, this church, Paul proclaims, has fallen in line with all who follow Jesus, who said that if we are to follow Him, we are to deny self, to pick up our cross and to follow. Meaning that that although in dying we receive life, ultimately we die daily. And we will not be promised ease, but peace in the midst of and through suffering. You see, church, we are to model to a world that seeks to avoid suffering at all costs how to suffer well. But the problem is that we seek too too often seek to avoid suffering in ways that limit our ability to passionately proclaim the gospel. 
Now, now I'm not saying for us to seek suffering, but don't cower when it comes. Boldly proclaim our hope through it. Imitate so that others might do the same. And so today in your life, are you imitating what it means to suffer well for the sake of others, even if it means your suffering being a means by which the gospel is lived and proclaimed? I got to experience a, a picture of this that pointed me to the ultimate picture of this uh, a couple of nights ago. Um, there was a certain baseball game on. And I am a fan of a certain team whose colors are not really being worn in here today, by the way. Other colors are, alright? And as Rangers fans, we suffered. And the, the neat thing about this is, one, like, I, I talked to another buddy after I had some time and said, hey, look, like, one of the things I've loved about this series is that I've been able to brainwash, no, uh, watch it with my children. Like, my kids are all engaged in it. Like, they are wearing Rangers apparel, even when we lose like they're saying, hey, dad, can we listen to uh, I love Texas or I like Texas? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're speaking to my soul. Uh, but uh, but more than that, just sitting down and, and watching my oldest son, Jude, just get excited. And and, and get into the game and, and love talking about it beside me. You see, I didn't have that as a kid. Like I had a grandfather, but he just bet on the game. So he didn't care. Right. <laughs> But I like to look at my sons, even my daughter, and, and they, they're excited about it. And they're engaged in it. But as we watched the end of that game the other night, I look over and I see Jude, who is, he's a mini-me in the way he looks and the way he acts. And, and he is just, man, we're both just stressed. And like we're talking about it, we're getting excited. And then, man, at, you know, and then we lose. And I looked over and I said, he is imitating me. Like he's pacing, he's filled with passion for the game. And guess what? I love that. But guess what? Baseball won't save him. And there is far better news to suffer for. As a dad, I'm to point him to the one who suffered for him, to pray that he would come to know him and to live through the ups and downs of life in such a way that, that, that he learns to model suffering well for the glory of God because I model what it looks like to, to, uh, to uh, live through suffering well for the glory of God. And then a question I have to ask myself is, do I? And a question each of you have to answer is, do you? Baseball, again, baseball will pass away. The suffering as Rangers fans might not end soon, but one day, World Series victory or not, it will end. It'll be done. You see, in Christ, there's better news for my son. And today, in Christ, there's better news for you if you don't know him. In Christ, we have hope through suffering because no suffering connects us ultimately to anything other than Jesus. That's why Paul can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And that's good news for the believer. But as we see in, in 15 and 16, it is bad news for the unbeliever. In 15 and 16, we see the reality of grace and wrath. But also in it, we see a call for us as believers. Now, you can go back and read. I'm not going to read those two verses again. You can go back and read them. Those, I will say that these two verses have been used throughout history to give license to some pretty horrible abuses, specifically towards those of Jewish descent. Nazi Germany would use these abuses to murder millions of Jews. And those who claim to be followers of Jesus leading a church, not all of them, but some of them would use this verse to say, yeah, and it's okay, you can do that. Look at what they've done. But that's not what Paul's saying here, okay? I'm not going to dive into great detail, both for the sake of time and what I believe to be the real focus of the text, but I want to say a few things about Paul's purpose in writing about the actions of the Jews here in the text and why it's not an anti-Semitic rant. First, Paul is himself a Jew by race. And if you read his other letters, specifically if you go read Romans 9 through 11, Paul reveals over and over again his longing for his Jewish brothers and sisters to come to saving faith in Christ. Actually, what Paul says in Romans, he says, man, I wish I wasn't a believer so they could be. Secondly, while the specifics of persecution Paul writes about here towards Christ and the church focus upon the Jews, the text also brings out that their persecution is from Gentiles as well. What he says is you're receiving the same thing from your brothers as we received from our brothers. What that means is he's saying, hey, uh, Gentiles, like they're persecuting you. And we know that they're persecuting because we see it in Acts 17. That what's happened is persecution came because there was a threat to Caesar. But lastly, and I believe this is really kind of the crux of the text, the focus of this text is to remind us that their suffering was not in vain, but actually it was twofold. That even though suffering, even though through persecution they might, that that even through persecution they might proclaim the gospel to their persecutors and that their hearts would be burdened for all who reject Christ, for in their rejection of grace, the only thing left for them in the end will be wrath. That's what Paul's really getting at here. He's not saying, woe is you, go and fight back. No, actually he's saying, he's saying, hey, when they persecute you, do what Jesus said, bless those that persecute you. That they might uh, at least hear the good news. That you would be able to tell them, hey, come to grace today, because if you don't, if you reject Jesus and what he's done... The only thing that will be left for you is wrath. That's what the text is talking about. You see, the good news and hope of this is, guess what? Today it's not too late. But I said, it it talks about uh, the reality of this, but also I believe of grace and wrath, but also I believe it talks about our call as followers of Jesus. Again, our call is to go and proclaim by imitating Christ both in both ease and suffering. And that we would get serious about it because there is eternal weight to calling people away from wrath and towards grace. And so how do we respond to this today? I think there's a few reasons or a few ways. First, today are you thankful? Like think about your life. Today are you thankful 
for what God has done, for what God is doing, and and will do in you for His glory and your good. Today, are you thankful for that? And if you are, have you told God you're thankful for that? When's the last time you sat and said, God, thank you for your steadfast love and mercy. Thank you that your mercy is new every morning. That your grace is near. Thank you that I am in you. Secondly, today are you thankful for what God has done, is doing, and will do for His glory and and good in the lives of others? And have you told them you're thankful for that? We've done this before where I've said, hey, like this week, I want you to reach out to three people, be it through letter or text or phone call, or, hey, if you're really crazy, face-to-face, right? And just tell them why you're thankful for the work that God is doing in their life. Next, today, does your life imitate the grace of God through all things to the world around you, specifically in how you suffer for the sake of the good news? And if so, ask God to give you the grace to continue to suffer well and proclaim proclaim with joyful hope the gospel is your only source of hope and peace. But today, if it's not, my question is, is, why not? Today, have you received the word of God? If not, I pray you heard the good news today and it would give you life. It, it would, and you would give your life to it. Because again, if you reject grace... I mean, God is so gracious that He continually lays it before you over and over and over again. But if you continually reject it, guess what? In the end, there will only be wrath left for you. And so if that's you today, that you would come to know Him. That you would give your life to Him. But maybe you're answering that question of why not with maybe you've forgotten your call and you've made life about your comfort instead of allowing His work to have priority in your life. And if so, I encourage you today to repent and leave this place today an imitator ready to suffer well. And so I'm going to have the team come back up and what we're going to do now is we're going to do two things. One, we're going to share in communion together. And so today, if you're a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you, um, whether you're a partner with us or not, if you're a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to come and share in communion, to share in the remembrance of what Jesus has done. You see, communion is a reminder uh, of Christ's suffering. But also it is a reminder to us that we share in His suffering. That we, uh, man, that, that part of our lives, that as we are in Christ, that that's just part of it. That it, Jesus says in this world you'll have trouble, but our suffering is not in vain. And ultimately, it is always ultimately redemptive in nature. I heard Kurt Thompson say the other day that the Christian story is the only one that takes suffering seriously enough such that we would say God is even going to use it in the redemptive process while redeeming the very notion of it at the same time. That's what we remember in sharing communion. The suffering of Jesus, but the victory that came about 
and the call of our lives as we are in Christ to, to live for Him even in the midst of suffering and hardship. And that through all things we would have joy to say, no, God, we know You're working in it to bring redemption, but also You're redeeming the very notion of it where one day there, it will be no more. And then we're going to worship. We're going to sing uh, the reality that God is sovereign over us. But I think if I could encourage you in one more way. Today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, today if you answer that question, why not, that you don't know Jesus, that, man, if you got questions about that or you were like, hey, I want to give my life to Jesus today, like, I'll be up here and you can come and just talk to me and just say, hey, uh, I want to know more about this Jesus. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, uh, those that are going to be presenting the elements, they'll come forward. I believe the braziers over here and the turners are going to be over here. And they're going to give you the uh, pass the elements out. If you'll make your way down the middle and go around the side and be seated. And once everyone's received the elements, um, I'll lead us in sharing in communion together. So Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is enough, that it is powerful to transform lives. But in that transforming, God, it, it always works through us. And so, God, we ask that you use this time to, to bring us to remembrance. But also that you use this time to draw us deeper into worship. And, God, that we would be a people that suffer well. And that we would model that to the world around us. A world that seeks, seeks escapism. God, if we're honest, often we seek escapism as well. We believe that lie. God, that we would all today say, God, no matter what it is, may we glorify you with our lives. May we suffer well for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.